miserably. Do you know the feeling of slapping your forehead with an open palm? Not just because you could have had a V8, but uh, because you really failed and are so disgusted with yourself. You've known the feeling, maybe the experience of thinking, I can't believe that I just did that. Or I can't believe that I did that even long ago. What was I thinking? If you said no to all of those questions, then you are either perfect or lying. And I don't think that uh, many of you are guilty of the former. Paul wasn't either. Therein lies the lesson for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will open our eyes to your word, that living word and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray that it will do its work in us, of uh, not only of um, cutting where cutting needs to be done, but also that your word will heal, for we need also the comfort that comes from your word as well as the conviction. Grant them both in your perfect measure to every heart in the hearing of my voice. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. May I remind you, by the way, before we take up, that Paul is in Jerusalem here, having almost died at the hands of a murderous Jewish mob, whom Lysias, the Roman tribune, has uh, saved or from whom he saved Paul by dispatching soldiers to rescue him and literally to carry him to safety. The same Lysias is also charged with maintaining order in Jerusalem, and so naturally he wants to know what precisely is the problem here. What is it about Paul that's creating all this hullabaloo among the Jews? Now, he might have wrenched that information and, in fact, intended to do just that from Paul through a brutal interrogation by flogging, had not Paul revealed to him last minute that he was a Roman citizen. So now, instead, using his Roman authority over the Jews of that area, Lysias resorts to calling a meeting, a meeting of the Sanhedrin, that is, the Jewish leaders that make is made up of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, including, as we saw last time, both Pharisees and Sadducees. It's at that meeting of the Sanhedrin that we pick up in verse 30. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, that is, Lysias unbound Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you. 
you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, do not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You might remember that several weeks ago I was at pains to defend Paul to you. Defend his decision to go to Jerusalem. Some Bible scholars argue that Paul was acting in disobedience to the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem where it had been prophesied he would be bound, arrested. Commentators, the caliber of Dr. James Boyce, no less, say that Paul should not have gone into that holy city. In response, I showed you how Paul was really imitating his Savior, Jesus He was not being disobedient. On the contrary, he was following in Jesus' footsteps all the way. The parallels, which I'll not review for you this morning, were striking between Paul and his Savior going to Jerusalem. But here, Paul's footsteps divert from Jesus. Here, in this case, he did not imitate his Savior. Remember when Jesus was struck on the mouth while standing before the high priest? The officer who struck him demanded of Jesus, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus responded, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? But Paul, on the other hand, when struck on the mouth, lashes back angrily. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. As I say, I've I've defended Paul against his accusers to this point. But it seems to me that there is no defense for this. Some have tried to defend him and one way or another, offering one excuse or another, his poor eyesight, for example, or ignorance about the high priest's identity. I don't buy them. Remember Jesus said that when it comes to dealing with our enemies in the world, we should be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, just as he was. Well, we saw Paul obeying the first, didn't we? We saw that last week, Paul being shrewd as a serpent. But when it came time for Paul to be innocent as a dove, in this case, in this particular situation, I mean, he blew it. If anything, we might say that Paul is not only shrewd as a serpent, but in this case, he strikes like one too. This, my brothers and sisters, this is Paul failing. And this may be the only place in the narrative of Paul's life and work recorded in the New Testament where we actually see him doing something wrong. Not that he was a porcelain saint, of course, in all other ways. He was, he was perfectly forthright about his own 
raging sinfulness. He was an apostle, to be sure, but like the other apostles, he too was still a sinner. And the fact that Paul sinned here by losing his temper and cursing the man who happened to be the high priest of Israel at that time is demonstrated, I think, by the fact that he apologizes. And not only does he apologize, he accuses himself with the law. He becomes his own prosecutor while surrounded by would-be prosecutors. And part of what makes this transgression here all the more striking is that Paul had just told them, told the leaders in verse 1, that he had lived before God with a clear conscience up to this day. What did he mean by that? That he had never sinned? That up to this point he had never broken God's law? Hardly. And what he meant is that he had served the Lord faithfully, which for a Christian includes the seeking of forgiveness for sin through Christ when we have failed, and then striving after holiness and obedience, even though we do not obtain those things perfectly in this life. There's the difference, you see, between blamelessness and sinlessness. Okay? There's a difference between blamelessness and sinlessness. While the Bible teaches that we will not achieve a sinless state until we enter heaven, it does also teach us that we can be blameless. It is possible for a Christian to live a blameless life. It has to be, because elders and candidates for the office of elder must be blameless, the Bible says. Which means that it's entirely possible for folk, Christian folk, to live blameless lives. Not sinless lives, but blameless, the Bible says. This is why the psalmist could say in a, way, in a way that has never failed to arrest me every time I've read it. He could say to the Lord in all seriousness, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Do you know who wrote those words? David wrote those words. You remember David? Remember all of David's life? Its dark parts, as well as its bright spots. I have walked in my integrity. Well, back to the room where Paul stands before the Sanhedrin. He blundered, to put it mildly. He's acted and he's reacted uh, impetuously. Maybe, just possibly, you can remember maybe one, maybe two times when you acted in similar ways yourselves. Hmm? Your mouth moved too quickly. You, you undermined your witness to a neighbor or a friend or even stranger by your behavior or by your words then you know how 
Paul regretted having said this, and even more regretted having undermined his cause, having undermined the Lord's cause in the process. I remember talking to a particular Christian years ago who was struggling so with sharing the gospel with his co-workers. He was particularly, he was employed in a particularly high-stress job, and then involved working with some of the very worst elements of society on a daily basis. As he explained his struggle to me, his reluctance to speak of Christ to his workmates, he said, John, they've seen the worst of me. They have seen me at my very worst. He felt he had failed his cause by his behavior and he regretted it so. Well, don't you think Paul regretted this? I mean, not just at that moment, but later on too. Don't you imagine that as he lay down that night, that he found himself staring at the ceiling with thoughts of regret, stealing the sleep from his eyes. Regretting what he said to the high priest, regretting that his flesh had gotten the better of him. Hadn't he just written recently to the Corinthians about how he and his companions, when reviled, blessed in return? And now, beating himself up for being so stupid, for spoiling the very effect that he had wanted to produce, for giving the enemies of the gospel just enough to write off the gospel altogether. He knew better. What have I done? What am I thinking? How can I do that? What's the matter with me? What Christian in this room can't sympathize with that? We've all been there and continue to be. And what can we do? Just what Paul did. Confess it. Acknowledge our wrongdoing. And then move on. That's the way it is, brothers and sisters. That's the nature of our lives in this world. This is the brutal fact. We are sinners and we have failed and we will continue to struggle and struggle and sometimes, yes, fall and then rise again. I wish I could tell you otherwise. I I sorely wish that I could assure myself that I would finally come to the place in my life where it would no longer be a struggle. Where where temptation and sin would not be my constant companions. But alas, it seems like as soon as one sin begins to loosen its grip on me, another one takes hold. In interactions with a particularly close friend of mine, another pastor, we've both had to lament to one another over the years how our flesh rises up far too much in our pastoring, in our parenting, leaving us with all kinds of fodder for regret, for confession, for seeking forgiveness, and then for striving to leave behind. We've had to remind each other, I don't know how many times as we've talked with each other, we've gone right back to Paul. Paul. To the Apostle Paul. To remind each other how it was late 
in his life and ministry, that he found it to be a law, he said, that when he wanted to do right, evil was always lying close at hand. Paul. Paul, that lion of a man, that hero of the covenant, that champion of the gospel and of the Christian life. Paul, the living example of everything that is pure and good and beautiful and noble and true. He who can part from country and from kin and scorn delights and tread the thorny way, a heavenly crown through toil and pain to win. He who reviled can tender love repay and buffeted for bitter foes can pray. He who, upspringing at his captain's call, fights the good fight, and when at last the day of fiery trial comes, can nobly fall. Such were a saint or more, and such the holy Paul. Yes, that Paul, who suffered beatings and scourgings and stonings willingly for Christ, who endured through scorn and humiliation, who planted churches, who preached to the Jews and to the Gentiles. That Paul was sick in his heart over his own soul and his own life and lamented, I don't understand what I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, and the evil I don't want to do, that I do. This I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? That genuine Cree de cour, the cry of his heart, who shall deliver me from this body of death, does two things for us. First, it puts us in the same camp as Paul. Miserable at sometimes, sometimes more than others over our sins and their terrible, sometimes devastating and ongoing effects, the reaping that inevitably follows the sowing. Even God's forgiveness, as wonderful as it is, we enjoy it every week in this house. He assures us again and forgives us again and washes us again. Wonderful, wonderful beyond words. But it does not necessarily remove the bitter aftertaste of our failures, does it? Even divine forgiveness of those sins doesn't make us feel like we never committed them or remove from us all regret for them. Well, I was reading this week on another matter altogether. I was reading about heaven, of all things, and the happy reunions that we will have there. I was reminded that regret for sins past often lingers long And a curious twist to the heavenly meetings, William Barclay writes in his spiritual autobiography this, I have never been able to see in this only the joy of meeting again those whom we have loved and lost a while. We shall have to meet again those whom we have wronged, those whom we have, uh, to whom we've been disloyal, 
those whom we have hurt, those whom we have deceived. There will no doubt be the reuniting of love, but there will also be the confrontation with truth. The one thing that haunted Paul long after he had become an apostle was that he had been a persecutor. When they were put to death, he said of the Christians, I cast my vote against them. F.W.B. Meyer makes Paul think of this in his poem, St. Paul, as he remembers the death of the saints for which he was responsible. Saints, did I say, with your remembered faces, dear men and women whom I sought and slew, ah, when we mingle in the heavenly places, how will I weep to Stephen and to you. When it comes to sin's regret, Paul's cry, who shall deliver me from this body of death, puts us in the same camp with Paul. Sinners with regrets. But second, that cry sends us in the same direction as it did Paul for the forgiveness of those sins. Who will deliver me? Paul cries out. It's a rhetorical question. It's the same question for you and for me as it was for him. He knew the answer and you must know it too. And lucky for us, he did not just ask it. He went on and supplied the answer to it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It sends us to the same Savior, you see, who forgives us those sins as forgave Paul his and does not hold them against us anymore. Who shall deliver you, Christian? Jesus shall deliver you. Christ shall deliver you. It's Christ who took your sins on himself. Jesus who paid the price for your sins and so in the process delivers you and will deliver you from this body of death when you believe in him and trust in him and follow him. When you confess your sin to him, wrote another apostle, who by the way knew also his own sin, I say, when you confess your sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But I don't feel that way, you say. I don't feel forgiven. Well, maybe you don't feel it. But whether you feel it or not, is not nearly as important as the fact that it is. That it is so that your sins are forgiven. And because it is so, you can, like Paul did here in Jerusalem, get up right away and go on, even after you have stumbled and fallen. But I'm still disgusted with myself, you say. I loathe my sin. Perhaps so. 
Paul did too. But again, your feelings are not the point. Your feelings are not the point. God's forgiveness is. And that objective fact, that fact that God has forgiven your sin is sufficient for you as it was sufficient for Paul to stand back up and get back going, regrets and all. And feelings may change. The pain and regret of past sins may fade and likely will with time. But bear this in mind. For the Christian who looks to Christ, the real blessing of forgiveness is not that all sense of regret disappears immediately, but that God immediately forgives, does not hold against you any of those things that you regret. Amen.